0: Good morning and greetings in Christ one more time. Brother, I want to thank you for leading the singing, but especially for introducing us to Augustus Toplady. Those are great, great, great hymns, and that is one of the best expressions of justification by faith alone you'll find anywhere. So thank you very much. What a wonderful day, way to start the day. It's a hymn that we ought to be singing regularly, and thank God for our Augustus Toplady. Well... What I want to do this morning is, in a sense, pick up where Dr. Barcellus left off last night, and I want to present to you some material that will address some historical questions about matters that are presented to us by some advocates of New Covenant theology. Brothers in Christ, for sure, but I think that there's a significant problem with this proposal that I will be examining. Now, if you want to read this in its fullness, with all the footnotes and all the rest. This is from Appendix E of my volume one um, for the Vindication of the Truth. So the whole thing is there. I'm not gonna be reading all of it to you, but I, uh, I think it's important, especially because this is a very popular view that's driven by the internet. And uh, I wrote this, I think, first in or about 20 years ago but I still see the same mythology that is going around. People accept this, and it needs to be refuted because it simply isn't true. So let me begin here. Myths and legends abound, even in the study of historical theology. An author proposes an opinion of one kind or another, and students naively follow the pronouncement, often taking it beyond the boundaries of its source, one of the problems that you have with students is you say something and they turn it into something else. They extend it in ways that you don't intend. Not all students do that, but some do. As more and more accept the suggestion, no longer as proposal but as fact, it is canonized. A postulate becomes a settled conclusion, and then it reigns as orthodoxy. Those who have accepted the idea promote it loudly and urge it upon all observers Sometimes simply because the conjecture is found in print, it gains the status of truth whether or not the historical record actually supports the notion. It's what we might call an urban legend. I spoke about them last week. Um, There's only one natural lake in Texas. It's not true. There are many natural lakes in Texas, but a lot of people believe that. Love bugs are the product of an experiment in a laboratory at the University of Florida. No, that's not true. They come from South America and Central America. But these are urban legends and people believe them. Well, that's what we're dealing with here. This is a case with, the import, with an important theological matter from early English Baptist history. We have been told with frequency and urgency that the first English Calvinistic Baptist held views of covenant theology, the moral law, and the Sabbath, which differed from their successors. In a strange mirror to the Calvin versus the Calvinist debate, we're told that the second generation of these Baptists developed and promoted a view out of concert with their fathers in the faith. Gary Long, who Dr. Barcelos was interacting with last night, has stated this in an introduction to a publication of the First London Confession. Why republish the 1646 edition of the first London Confession of Faith? Why not use the more popular 1689 London Baptist Confession, a Baptist modification of the Westminster Confession of Faith with its larger and shorter catechisms agreed upon and approved in 1647-48 by the Assembly of Divines at Westminster and ratified by Acts of Parliament in 1649? Both of these latter confessions are currently in print and readily available, The principal reason lies in the following explanation. So he's going to tell us why he's in favor of and is participating in a reprint of First London. An examination of the Westminster Confession of 1647-49, to including the larger and shorter catechisms, one will find stress placed upon the law of God summarily comprehended in the Mosaic Decalogue as a rule of life for the believer. Conversely, The stress of the 1646 edition of the First London Confession is upon the new covenant commands of the law of Christ. In sum, and then this is the important statement, there is a distinctive new covenant emphasis concerning biblical law in the 1646 edition of the First London Confession that is distinctly lacking in the old covenant emphasis of the Westminster and 1689 London Confessions. This distinction in the 1646 Confession has important theological implications for understanding both the role of the law of Christ as God's ethical standard or rule for the believer's life under the New Covenant and for understanding the relationship of the law of God to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gary Long. Now, these paragraphs plainly describe Dr. Long's position. In his reading of the two Baptist Confessions, There are diverse emphases on the nature of the law of God. The earlier confession is said to have a distinctive new covenant emphasis, while the latter confession distinctly lacks this, instead having an old covenant emphasis. When one asks, how is this difference indicated, the reply is telling. According to Dr. Long, the earlier confession has, now I quote again, a distinctive emphasis upon a right use of the law of God in preaching the gospel to the conversion of sinners, and in the evangelical obedience of those sanctified by the spiritual grace of the new covenant. There is a noticeable absence of such teachings, now this is in the first London, there's a noticeable absence of such teachings as the threefold division of the law into moral, ceremonial, and judicial, which we heard about last evening, keeping pardon me, keeping of the Sabbath commandment as an eternal moral law, and the later theological developments of one overarching covenant of grace, different administrations teaching. Long's argument rests on two factors. The presence of what we might call positive doctrines. Now, don't confuse that with what I've been talking about, positive law. What I mean by positive doctrines are those things that are explicitly stated in the confession of faith, the things that they address And and secondly, the absence of statements of doctrine he deems to be in contrast to these views. So he looks at what they say, and he notices what they don't say, and draws some conclusions from this. The careful observer will notice immediately the problem with this scheme. It artificially proposes a bifurcation between the two positions that are based on the interpretation of the author. Long provides no 17th century evidence in support of his reading of the confession. He assumes that the positive statements are to be understood according to his own definition, and that the absence of other matters of necessity indicates that the document rejects them. If they didn't include it, they must not have believed in it. That's the the simple way that this is approached. In this way, it's easy to assert that the first generation held his view and that the latter generation departed from it. And this is a clever attempt to win the historical battle and assert that his position reflects the earliest and thus most historically authentic particular Baptist position. But is it? Has Dr. Long properly understood the teaching of the Confession? As evidenced by the debate over Protestant scholasticism, and I mean specifically the Calvin versus the Calvinist debate, maybe you you know something of that, that uh, English Puritanism, under the influence of Theodore Beza and William Perkins, uh, lost touch with the assurance, mercy, uh, spiritual essence of Calvin's theology and turned English Puritanism into a law-oriented kind of theology. It was promoted by um, an American, uh, R.T. Kendall. It was picked up by J.I. Packer, but it has been thoroughly refuted in the last 20 years by uh, Carl Truman, by Richard Muller, by Scott Clark, by many others, so that in the academic world, the Calvin versus the Calvinist position no longer holds any water. But this is a mirror to that. As evidenced by the debate over Protestant scholasticism or Calvin versus the Calvinists. historical theological myths die hard. Nonetheless, we shall attempt here to put this myth to a final rest. Sadly, over 20 years, it's hasn't died at all. My question for this author and for those who follow his assertions is this. Can you give evidence from the writings of these men that you accurately describe their views? A confession of faith does not exist in a theological vacuum, but is and must be understood as a summary of a whole system of doctrine. It has a provenance and a context its authors or editors and the adherents in their churches understood that it was not the totality of their faith, but rather a digest of a larger belief system. This fact is borne out by the document itself. In the epistle, which is titled To the Judicious and Impartial Reader, as the, the title to the epistle of First London and Second London, and this epistle, which is omitted by the addition that Dr. Long is introducing, says this. The reader is instructed, and as for the other things whereof we are accused, we refer those who desire further satisfaction to the answer of them, and there's an asterisk. The asterisk points you to the margin, which was effectively how they did footnotes, and there in the margin we read this. In a small treatise, entitled Brief Considerations on Dr. Feetley, his book entitled The Dipper Dipped by Samuel Richardson. Oh, do you, know, do you know about The Dipper Dipped? Daniel Feetley, what a character he was. He was a member of the Westminster Assembly, though he wasn't a Presbyterian. He was a royalist. And because Parliament was at war with the king... One of the requirements to sit in the Westminster Assembly is what we would call a non-disclosure agreement. You have to sign off on that or make a commitment to it that you wouldn't reveal the internal debates and discussions of the Westminster Assembly. But Featley leaked some of that information back to the king, and so he was removed from his position as a member of the Westminster Assembly. But he wrote this nefarious book called The Dippers Dipped, in which he argues against the first london confession of faith he can hardly find any unorthodox statements in it but oh there's there's so much more about that book that in a sense is hilarious but also deeply troubling from a man who really ought to have known better but the whole purpose of the book is to throw as much mud as possible on these new baptized churches that that's the purpose of the book it's scurrilous in places i won't talk about how scurrilous it is because we're in a mixed assembly But there are things in there that would shock you that he says about the Baptists that simply have no basis in fact or reality. It's simply doing everything that he can to make them look as evil as possible. Well, anyways, Samuel Richardson wrote a reply. And in his reply, he addresses supplementary issues and also says, If any desire further satisfaction, I refer them to John Spilsbury's book about baptism, and other books of the same subject. Now, the chase is on, because even there, they're giving us clues about supplemental uh, uh, books that have been published, information that we can look to to see exactly what they meant. What was their intention in the confession of faith? The scribes to the Confession, Richardson and Spilsbury were both subscribers, send the reader to another book, which again sends the reader to a broader body of literature. These additional works provide greater detail and extended argumentation for the doctrines of the Confession. They are its theological context. To ignore them is to run the risk of misunderstanding or misrepresenting the doctrines of the Confession itself. What I'm saying is, we can't just go to an old document and read it as if it was written in 2023. We have to think about its language, recognizing the fact that words change meaning over time. Um, An example in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul speaks about those who, uh, where the dead in Christ will rise and precede us. Well, the 1611 King James Version uses the word prevent. Now, when when we use the word prevent, we mean to keep somebody from doing something, don't we? Perhaps to put up a fence or to use some kind of obstacle. But in the 1611 King James Version, what it means is to go before, prevenere, to go before. The word has completely changed its sense. So we have to be careful when we're working with old documents to be certain that we're understanding the words as they would have been understood by those who use them, and not make assumptions, modern assumptions, bringing them with us to the text. Um, If you've ever read Shakespeare, you know that you have to do that with him. You have to pay attention and read it slowly and, and work with it. The same with documents from the Puritan era. We must ask the question, what do the primary sources say? Primary sources are books or manuscripts, that are written at the time and that give illumination. Secondary sources are works that are done later, seeking to interpret. I'm a secondary source in everything that I write, but I try to work with primary sources. So if you've seen any of these books on the confessions, you'll notice that they're packed full of citations from contemporary authors. That's what a primary source is. What does the primary source say, and how does it help us to understand this? Well, how do these men in their own writings flesh out the doctrines of the confession? All right, The confession says this, it doesn't say that. What do the broader writings say? That's what I want to talk about in the time that's left to me. Now, I have to abbreviate this because there's much more here than I could possibly work my way through, and so I don't want to do that. I'm skipping the whole section on covenant theology. Because though it is related to, it's not directly related, it's not immediately apparent um, that it is necessarily in the front when we speak about, when we're at a conference about the law. So I'm skipping over that part, and I'm going right to my section on the moral law. Central to Long's argument is the assertion that the earlier confession, 1646, teaches a different view of the law to that of the Second London Confession. Let me remind you of his words. There is a distinctive New Covenant emphasis concerning biblical law in the 1644 and 1646 editions of the First London Confession that is distinctly lacking in the Old Covenant emphasis of the Westminster and 1689 London Confessions. This distinction in the 1646 Confession has important theological implications for understanding both the role of the law of Christ as God's ethical standard or rule for the believer's life under the New Covenant, and for understanding the relationship of the law of God to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we've been talking about this, these couple of days. How does the law relate to us, and how are we to understand it? Now I, c- I come back. What is this New Covenant emphasis? Is it a statement of discontinuity? Does it mean that the law of Christ replaces the old covenant law, as it's called, so that in a vital way they differ? In reality, it is an attempt to read the proposed ideas of the recent so called new covenant theology back into the original document. Let's examine some of the statements on law found in the writings of these contemporary particular Baptists. They're not lacking, in fact, they give clear testimony help us understand their position on the nature of the law and its relation to the believer. So you understand what I'm doing? I'm trying to show you that there is no difference in the theology of law between the First London Confession and the Second London Confession by looking into the primary sources in the surrounding literature. That's what I'm trying to do. One of the subscribers to the First London Confession was a man named Paul Hobson. Later on, he became quite a scoundrel and had to be disciplined by his church, but that was years later. In a 1645 book titled, The Fallacy of Infants' Baptism Discovered, Hobson expounds Matthew 28, 20, which he renders, that's his translation of it, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Very similar to the 1611 King James, which would have been the Bible that they used. After a series of preliminary remarks, according to the fashion of the day, he deduces several doctrines from the text. Have you ever read a Puritan sermons and there's an introductory paragraph and then there's Doctrine 1, Doctrine 2, Doctrine 3? Well, he follows that pattern exactly. Here, here's what he says. The first of his doctrines is that the apostles were to teach the commands of Christ. Okay, that's what the text says. The second is this. I quote, that the commands of Christ ought to be observed... You know, in a sense you say, duh. But that's what good preaching does, actually. It says simple things and reinforces them. There's nothing wrong with making these points. The third doctrine is that all that we are to observe as a duty to Christ must not arise from supposition, but it must answer a command given out by Christ. So we don't add to the law of God, but we take the law that Christ gives to us seriously. In reading these words, one might assume that he's arguing for a discontinuity between law as revealed prior to Christ and law given directly by Christ. But to reason in this manner is to miss his point, for he immediately proceeds to define the commands of Christ. Okay, We are to teach the commands of Christ. We're to obey the commands of Christ. We must not add to the commands of Christ. But there's a marginal entry that says, what the law of Christ or the commands of Christ is. And Hobson writes this, By the commands of Christ, my meaning is, not the ceremonial law, which was a type of Christ, and did in a dark way hold forth Christ, nay, by the laws of Christ or the commands of Christ, I do not intend the moral law considered in the hands of Moses. Though I must tell you, First, I own the authority of that law. Secondly, I own the materials of that law. But the obligement of that law, do this and live, for so it was considered in the hand of Moses, so it is not to be considered in the hand of Christ to us, for now we are not to do for life, but because we live. But consider the authority of God and the materials of the law handed to us in Christ, so I own it and desire all saints may do so." Now, do you hear what he did there? When I I stopped, there was a pause for effect. I do not intend the moral law. I paused. But then I added, I continued, considered in the hands of Moses. Now, this is a very important description of Hobson's understanding of the Christ-centeredness of the law for believers. He does not argue that there is a new law, but rather that the same law comes to believers in a new way. Under the Old old Covenant, the command was, do this and live. Hobson asserts here, in brief language, that the Old Covenant was a republication of the Adamic Covenant of Works, a classic form of covenant theology. Obedience to its law was a path of life, but under Christ, obedience results from life. Life is not the goal of obedience, but rather its source. Christ saves sinners, and because of this gift of grace, they are to obey him. Notice that there is a clear assertion that the content of the law is the same. The difference is in the grant from the mediator, not in the command itself. Hobson could not be clearer. He owns, a very important word, he owns the authority and materials of the moral law. His concern is that believers see the same law, not in Moses, but from Christ, the only lawgiver. A corresponding view is stated by another of the 1646 confessors, Hansard Knowles. In the same edition, in the same same year as the edition of the confession that is introduced by Gary Long, he published a series of sermons entitled Christ Exalted a lost sinner sought and saved by Christ. In that book, he said this, The difference between these two schoolmasters, the law and Christ, is this. Moses in the law commands his disciples to do this and forbear that, but gives no power, nor communicates no skill to perform anything. Christ commands his disciples to do the same moral duties, And to forbear the same evils, and with his command he gives power and wisdom, for he works in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Hear what he says? Moses gives this law to Israel, and there's no power to keep it. Christ gives the same law to his people, but because they are his people, he's given them his spirit, and so internally they are able to keep that law very different to the way that Israel was in the wilderness or in the Old Testament. Now, this is exactly the same as Hobson's doctrine. While the content of the law remains the same for believers under the two covenants, the new era believer receives power from Christ to obey those laws. Notice that the same moral duties are commanded by Christ. And so I wonder, is this a distinctive new covenant emphasis? Well, of course it is but not in the way that the advocates of New Covenant theology make their case. It is not that Christ's command replaced those of the previous covenant. Rather, it is that Christ gives power, the indwelling Holy Spirit, to his disciples so that they may keep these same commands. So there is a distinctive New Covenant emphasis, but it's not a replacement. It's a power that is given to keep those commandments. In his preface, written in 2003... Dr. Long suggests this. I I hope that in no way am I demeaning the character and integrity of Mr. Long. I don't intend to do that. So please don't think in those terms. So far as we know, a Christian brother, I've met people who knew him, they speak highly of him. Uh, I expect that at the foot of Christ, in the eternal kingdom, we will be brothers together at that place. So don't hear me saying anything about his spirituality. I think he's wrong here. In the same way that I would say our Presbyterian friends are wrong when they try to convince us to baptize our babies. But anyways, he says this. The present-day doctrinal issues arising within the Reformed Baptist group and the issues on the law of God while not answered at length in the 1646 Baptist Confession are embedded in the confession held by the Sovereign Grace Baptists. Um, Then he says, see Articles 25 and 29 of the Confession and especially Articles 9 and 10 of the Appendix which answer in brief the lawful use of the understanding of the law of Moses and the law of Christ. All right, let's look at these items. It's important to understand Article 25 in the light of its immediate predecessor, which states this. This is Article 24. That faith is ordinarily begot by the preaching of the gospel or word of Christ, without any respect to any power or capacity in the creature, but it is wholly passive, that is, the creature, being dead in sins and trespasses, does believe and is converted by no less power than that which raised Christ from the dead. Amen. Article 25, so that immediately precedes the one that he flags. Article 25 follows, The preaching of the gospel to the conversion of sinners is absolutely free. No way requiring as absolutely necessary any qualifications Preparations or terrors of the law or preceding ministry of the law, but only and alone the naked soul, a sinner and ungodly, to receive Christ crucified, dead and buried and risen again, who is made a prince and a savior for such sinners as through the gospel shall be brought to believe on him. Now, these two articles belong together, and they address the experience of conversion and carefully argue against a doctrine that was common among some Puritans known as preparationism. Have you ever heard of preparationism? That's that's a a title that's given to a way that the gospel was preached among some Puritans, especially in New England Puritans, um, who believed that it was necessary for the unbeliever to endure a period of the terrors of the law, to feel the depth of sin, and then finally to be rescued by faith. So that in their preaching of the gospel, they tended to point people to the law and urge them to seek after this experience of the terrors of the law, of conviction under the law. I am a terrible sinner, oh God save me, what can I do? Go through long periods of time until finally they would come to Christ. Now what the the, the Baptists were saying is, we want to preach Christ to them. We don't send them to the law and an experience of the law. We send them to Jesus and say, believe in Jesus, and he will forgive your sins. That's the point that they're making. You know what? They're right. They're right. We, we, is the law good a good tool to use to show people their sins? Of course it is. That's the so-called first use of the law that I mentioned the other night. And it is important for people to understand that they're sinners, but that doesn't mean that they have to endure a long or extended period of time in which they feel the, the depth and reality of their sins. They recognize that they're hopeless, and, and when they die, they'll go to hell. No, no, no. We tell them that they're sinners by the law, and then we point them to Christ and say, Christ is the one who will forgive your sins. Come to him. That's all our fathers were saying. Have you ever read Um, John Bunyan's Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, he, he experienced a conversion with the power of the law upon him for an extended period of time. They're not denying that some people go through those kinds of experiences. They're not saying that That's not the way that some were converted. The problem with the preparationists is they argued that everyone must have that kind of an experience. And if you haven't had that experience, you're probably not a genuine Christian. You have a notional faith, not a true faith. And our Baptist fathers wanted to say, that's not the case. Some may go through that experience. Bunyan is a good example. But there are many others who simply come to faith in Christ. So far as I know, William Kiffin, one of the most important of them in the 1640s, had that kind of an experience of conversion. These paragraphs address the... Well, I've already read that. It would be very easy to um, produce several testimonies by particular Baptist authors against preparationism. I deal with this at length in Volume 1 of my Baptist Symbolics books. They were very concerned to emphasize the monergistic nature of conversion, basing their covenant theology on the fact that God is the one who comes to sinners in covenant. Now, they do not deny that in some believers there may be a powerful experience of conviction by way of the law. They simply state that such an experience is not the paradigm of conversion and must not be expected prior to faith. When elders examine an individual in order to bring them to baptism, they ought not to look for necessity of an ability to express some kind of extended uh, um, conviction under the works of the law. So far as I know, only those who are committed preparationists would differ with this statement. It in no way undermines the place of the law in the life of the believer. It's, It's carefully stated. Law also, I'm sorry, Long also flags Article 29, which says, All believers are a holy and sanctified people, and that sanctification is a spiritual grace of the new covenant and an effect of the love of God manifested in the soul, whereby the believer presseth after a heavenly and evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in his new covenant hath prescribed to them. Okay, that's good. I agree with that. This article, though, should be compared with the third paragraph of the 13th chapter of the Second London Confession, which chapter is entitled Of Sanctification. And it says this, maybe you noticed this as I read from Article 29 of First London. Second London says this, in which war, speaking about the battle that we face, in which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, Yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome, and so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, and then they cite language that I just read to you from Article 29 of the First London, pressing after in heavenly life an evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in his word hath prescribed to them. Same language. Same language. In the second confession, the Baptists explicitly incorporated the language of the earlier document in order to assert their complete agreement. Now it's curious that the very article indicated by Gary Long, Article 29, is used in both confessions. Do they present differing doctrines? Maybe a postmodernist would assert that they do. But if the words have any meaning, no such conclusion may be accepted. There is a uniform stress placed on the Christ-centered nature of obedience in sanctification. It's not Moses, it's Jesus who tells us to do the things that are commanded in the law. In both general confessions issued in this era, and it's important to remember that they're only 31 years apart. I can remember 31 years ago. Many of you can remember 31 years ago. Uh, That's A lot of the people in our churches have been members for 31 years. It's the same people and the same churches. The same doctrine is presented. Christ gives commands, moral duties to his people, which are fulfilled in them by the indwelling power of the Spirit, which he also gives to them. Christian obedience is always evangelical. It's not legal. It always flows out of the gospel, not out of the law. The law defines it, but it flows out of us by Christ's spirit given to us. How do we know what we ought to do? We look to the law of God. We look to what it teaches us. It instructs us. It helps us. The third use of the law that we mentioned the other night. The appendix that Dr. Long mentions is itself an interesting document. Now, there's no evidence that it was ever printed and bound together with the first confession. Typically, when we have an appendix, It's put right at the end of the document, bound together. But there's no evidence that exists anywhere that they were ever placed together. It's simply a word that Benjamin Cox, its author, used. Here's its full title. An appendix to a confession of faith, or a more full declaration of the faith and judgment of baptized believers, occasioned by the inquiry of some well-affected and godly persons in the country, that's outside of London, written by Benjamin Cox, a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, published for the further clearing of truth and discovery of their mistake, who have imagined a descent in fundamentals where there is none. Now, notice that. Some have thought that the Baptists disagreed with fundamental Christian doctrines, and Cox writes this appendix to say, that's not the case. We are not outside the pale of orthodox Christianity. As it was understood— in 1646 uh, in the Puritan uh, context. The note at the end of the title page provides us with some interesting information. Cox was seeking to continue the mission of the confession itself to assert agreement in doctrine in the face of misunderstanding and misrepresentation. Uh, One wonders if Daniel Featley was in the background here. He may well have been. Most likely, this was a further attempt to demonstrate the orthodoxy of these seven churches. They were faced with not only the scandalous charges of Daniel Featley and his attempt to identify them with the worst of the European Anabaptists, but also the desire to distance themselves from the Arminian or General Baptists who were also present in London at the time. And it may be that there were more General Baptists than particular Baptists in London at the same time. Much of Cox's appendix, explicates the doctrines commonly known as Calvinism. Article 6 mentions opposers in the context of objections to the doctrine of total depravity and eternal punishment. Now, Articles 9 and 10 are mentioned by Dr. Long. They state this. Article 9, this is from Cox's appendix. Though we believe that in Christ, be not under the law but under grace, Romans 6.14, yet we know that we are not lawless or left to live without a rule. Not without law to God, but under law to Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.21 The gospel of Jesus Christ is a law or commanding rule unto us, whereby and in obedience whereunto we are taught to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present world. Titus 2.11 and 12 The directions of Christ in his evangelical word guiding us unto, and in this sober, righteous, and godly walking. 1 Timothy 1.10 and 11 Then Article 10 Though we be not now sent to the law as it was in the hand of Moses to be commanded thereby, yet Christ in his gospel teacheth, teach it, teacheth and commandeth us to walk in the same way of righteousness and holiness that God by Moses did command the Israelites to walk in all the commandments of the second table being still delivered unto, unto us by Christ, and all the commandments of the first table as touching the life and spirit of them, in this epitome or brief sum, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, etc. And he cites the text from Matthew 22 and Romans 13. Well, how should these statements be understood? In the light of all that we presented, there could be no mistake. Cox promotes the same doctrine asserted by Paul Hobson, Hansard Knowles, and the two confessions. There is a new covenant emphasis here, but it's not rooted in a fundamental change of the content of the law. Rather, it's found in the context of obedience. All the commandments of the law, the first and second tables, are delivered to us by Christ. Our task is to obey them, not for life, but because he has given us life. Guilt, grace, gratitude. This doctrine is consistent throughout the documents. The believer lives in the climate of Christ-centered obedience. His task is to demonstrate his love for a Savior by obeying the commands delivered by Christ, the same moral commands delivered by Moses. I wonder, why do men miss this point? Well, the answer is simple. They've not read the Confessions in their original context. Familiarity with primary sources is paramount, in historical theological discussions. Without reference to them, conclusions are worthless. Now, let me take up the issue of the Sabbath. Because to some degree, this is the acid test for the views of the particular Baptists. If it may be demonstrated that they understood that there was a continuing obligation to observe the Fourth Commandment, it will be evident that these statements refer to the Ten Commandments as a unit. Okay, So, the Sabbath. Now, I can skip over some of this because this is familiar. Um, By the way, I was not trying to say anything bad about R.C. Sproul last night. I don't know why that accusation was made against me. I miss the man, I thank God for him. All I said was that Stephen Marshall was the R.C. Sproul of his era, that's all. So whoever thought that was really mistaken. But let me remind you of Stephen Marshall and his uh, sermon of the baptizing of infants preached in the Abbey Church at Westminster, etc. You remember what he said? I see that all who reject the baptizing of infants do and must, upon the same ground, reject the religious observation of the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath. And we heard all that last night. And you will have heard the same responses that I gave from Christopher Blackwood and John Toombs. But one of the things, nobody called me on this, and I was a little bit surprised by it. I, I mentioned the fact, well, I get, hold on to that. Just hold on to that for a minute. I'm getting ahead of my notes. There is some evidence that some general Baptists, Arminians, denied the obligation of keeping the first day as a Sabbath. Okay? Now, what, what you tend to have had in the 1640s is that the observers lumped everybody who practiced Believer's baptism into one camp. But it's very important to keep them separate because they had very different beginnings. They didn't have any close interaction with each other. They really were, I hate to use the D word, but they were, in a sense, two different denominations. Okay, Here's the evidence from the General Baptist. In 1643, just after the Westminster Assembly began meeting, in September, two men, Edward Barber and Thomas Nutt, that really was his name, Thomas Nutt, requested, they, they published a, a one-page um, challenge to the Westminster Assembly. They say this, For the glory of God and the clearing of his truths and the farther shining forth of Jesus Christ in his glorious gospel to his people, to call us before them and also to the doctors of the synod, that's the members of the Westminster Assembly. As many as they please and proclaim that all the accusers of what we hold, contrary to the truth of God, may here accuse us. And if those doctors can prove their ministry, the validity of Presbyterian ordination, or actually, you know that all of the Presbyterians in the Westminster Assembly were ordained by as Episcopalians? The Presbyterianism of the members of the Westminster Assembly was a theoretical Presbyterianism because they had never been part of a Presbyterian church. They believed it in theory. They wanted to implement it, but they weren't yet. They were effectively Episcopalians. If those doctors can prove their ministry, that is, that the ordination that comes through bishops is right, prove their baptism or their Sabbath to be commanded of God or owned by Christ or anything we hold to be contrary to godliness then we will thankfully be reduced to the truth and repent and revoke our error and suffer for our presumption. But if, they shall be made, if it shall be made evident that neither their ministry, baptism, nor Sabbath be commanded of God, although it be a light but very new sprung forth to bring us out of ignorance, whereout, when it please not God to give us the means to see and come forth the time of that ignorance regarded not, but now will command all his people everywhere to repent and walk after the light and give them repentance for his glory and their eternal punishment. So this is a challenge to the members of the Westminster Assembly. Remember, Stephen Marshall was one of them that came from a, one group of baptized believers, but distinguishing between the two groups, it comes from the general Baptist leaders, and they do deny the presence of a Sabbath. Um, Let me skip ahead here. I wanted to talk about John Toombs. This is what no one called me on last night. When I read the quotation from Toombs, I said that there were two grounds upon which he responds to them, and I only read the first. I fully expected somebody to say, Well, what about Toombs' second point? Well, let me give you Toombs' second point right now. He says, Give me leave to tell you that you leave out two explications that are needful to be taken in. First, that when they say so, they mean it of positive instituted worship. We read that material last night. Um, Such as circumcision, baptism, and the Lord's Supper are, which have nothing moral or natural in them, but are in whole and in part ceremonial. For that which is natural or moral in worship, they allow an institution or command in the Old Testament as obligatory to Christians, And such do they conceive the Sabbath to be, as being of the law of nature, that outward worship being due to God, days are due to God to that end, and therefore even in paradise, appointed from the creation, and in all nations, in all ages observed, enough to prove so much to be of the law of nature, and therefore the fourth commandment justly put among the morals. And if a seventh day, now listen to this, if a seventh day, Saturday, indefinitely be commanded there, in the Mosaic, in the fourth commandment, as it comes from Moses, as some of your assembly have endeavored to make good. Now, there was a movement among the Puritans to observe Saturday as a Sabbath day. In fact, there were particular Baptist churches that worshiped on the seventh day. Seventh-day Baptists rather than first-day particular Baptists. Now, they've died out, and they they had good relations with each other. The Seventh-day men would often fill the pulpit in the First-day churches, and the First-day men would fill the pulpit in the Seventh-day churches when need came. So they had cordial relationships with each other, but there were those who were arguing for a Seventh-day rather than a First-day. Toombs goes on. Um, Circumcision hath nothing moral in it, it is merely positive positive neither from the beginning, nor observed by all nations and all ages, nor in the Decalogue, and therefore Sabbath may stand, though it fall. Two, the other explication is that when they require express institution or command in the New Testament, they do not mean that in positive worship there must be a command in so many words, in form of a precept, but they conceive that apostolical example, which hath not a mere temporary reason, is enough to prove an institution from God to which that practice doth doth relate." And in this, after some evidences in the scripture of the New Testament, they ascribe much to the constant practice of the church in all ages. Now then, if it be considered that when Paul preached upon the first day of the week, and Paul was at Troas, Acts 20, verse 7, the disciples came together to break bread, and Paul, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, as he had appointed in the churches of Galatia, so he appoints at Corinth collections for the poor on the first day of the week. And Revelation 1.10, it hath the approval or title of the Lord's Day, and so it is called sacred among Christians, that it was made the question of inquisitors of Christianity in the ancient Roman world during the period of persecution. The question was, hast thou kept the Lord's Day? To which was answered, I am a Christian, I may not omit it. It is clear clear evidence to me that either Christ or the apostles, having abrogated the old Sabbath, the seventh-day Sabbath, Colossians 2:16 subrogated this might be the only time i've ever seen that word subrogated abrogated but now subrogated placed put in its place subrogated the first day of the week instead of it now if a moiety a small amount of this could be brought for pedobaptism instead of circumcision of infants i should subscribe to it with you But pedo not consisting with the order of Christ in the institution, being contrary to the usage of it by John the Baptist and the apostles, there being no footsteps of it till the erroneous conceit grew of giving God's grace by it and the necessity of it to save an infant from perishing some hundreds of years after Christ's incarnation, I dare not assent to the practice of it upon a supposed analogy, equity, or reason of the rule of circumcision and imaginary confederation with the believing parent in the covenant of grace." For to me it is a dangerous principle, upon which they that so argue, to wit, that in mere positive things, such as circumcision and baptism are, we may frame an addition to God's word from analogy or resemblance conceived by us between two ordinances, where if one is quite taken away, everybody admits that circumcision is gone, without any institution gathered by precept or apostolical example. For if we may do it in one thing, why not in another? Where shall we stop?" They that read the popish expositors of their rituals do know that this very principle hath brought in the surplice. The surplice was a, a white gown that the, the priest would wear over his robes, and it set him apart. The early Puritans in the sixteenth century hated the surplice with all of their strength. This they abominated the surplice because of what it meant. He goes on purification of women. Do you know that in the Anglican churches, in the Roman churches in the Middle Ages, after a woman gave birth, she had to go through a period of purification that was drawn from the Old Testament purification laws. And Toombs is saying, what principle do we have? Can we continue that? Now, in Puritanism, they did away with the practice of purification of women. But Toombs is challenging them and saying, why? You've held on to this remnant of Rome in infant baptism, why don't you hold on to the other remnants of Rome? That's effectively what he's saying. I desire any learned man to set me down a rule from God's word, how far I may go in my conceived parity of reason, equity or analogy, and where I must stop, when it will be superstition and will worship, when not, when my conscience may be satisfied, when not. That which Christ and his apostles have taken from the Jews and appointed to us, we receive as they have appointed. But if any other man, if a pope or ecumenical council, take upon them to appoint to men's consciences any right in whole or in part, upon his own conceived reason, from supposed analogy with the Jewish ceremonies, it is in high presumption and such against Christ and against the apostles' command to yield to it, Colossians 2.20, though it hath a show of wisdom, Verse 23. And the Apostle's example, Galatians 2, 3, 4, and 5, binds us to oppose it when it is likely to bring us into bondage. Now, that's only part of a very long quotation, but it's of great importance. Because Tombs addresses our issue in great detail. Not only does he challenge Marshall's assertion, but he fully describes the theological basis for the particular Baptist observance of the Lord's day, even while they rejected infant baptism. Marshall was incorrect. The morality of the fourth commandment carried the obligation of the day forward into the new covenant, even though there's no repetition of the commandment, though there is example of keeping a day. Circumcision and the principle of infant inclusion attached to it was merely ceremonial and thus passed away with the annulment of its covenant. Once again, we find evidence not only of the observance of the Lord's Day among the particular Baptists, but also of their commitment to an understanding of the differences present in the Mosaic Law. I'm pushing up against my time limit, and there's a whole lot more that I had hoped to say. Later on in the same work, Toomes refers to the First London Confession of Faith in order to demonstrate the orthodoxy of the churches. But there's even more that we could say. Let me, let me skip ahead and get to uh, an interesting incident. In around 1657, so this is 11 years later, one of the churches that was involved in the movement faced a controversy. They removed from their membership a man whose name was Richard Bollamy. Mr. Bollamy seems to have been a fairly young man who openly adopted pedo and left the church to attend a parish of the Church of England. This was considered a very serious breach of conduct and resulted in his exclusion from membership. Ballamy did not receive the church's act with grace, but went into print to plead his case and make serious allegations against the church and its pastor, whose name was William Facey. Because of the public nature of Ballamy's accusations, he went into print, two pastors from other churches joined together to issue a reply. Robert Steed of Dartmouth, And Abraham Chayer of Plymouth collaborated, saying this, "'Ballamy's book was indeed by many thought unworthy of an answer for a time. But seeing it grew into repute by the countenance of some that are accounted men of worth, who scattered it abroad as an undoubted evidence of truth, we have thought it good to give men a warning at present against such artifices to deceive.'" Remember what I said at the beginning about what happens with an urban legend? Somebody publishes it, and then somebody picks it up, and then it gets spread, and it becomes truth. That seems to have been what happened here. Probably some pedo-baptist ministers picked up these words and used it as more mud to sling against the baptized churches. Steed and Chair understood that the reputation of their churches around the country was being damaged by Balamy's production. They knew that in Tiverton, that's where the first church was where Balamy uh, caused the trouble, they knew that in Tiverton, people would be able to access the true facts of the case, but that at a distance, people would tend to accept as gospel the account provided by the dissident. For this reason, they hesitantly went into print. One of Balamy's charges against the Tiverton particular Baptists was of denying the power of the magistrate for punishing evildoers, and they replied to that. Um, They say, what the principles of the people whom he in in general accuseth are in this point is full well known to the world by their confession of faith, particularly that of the congregations in London, Article 47. Now, this is the first London. As for this particular congregation, they have explicitly testified their fellowship with these churches in this profession of faith. All right, so the Tiverton Church where the trouble has come, has openly subscribed to the First London Confession of Faith. It is their doctrine. Taken at face value, that well, that's what this says. Um, not only was it an important document for the seven churches in London, but the Tiverton is an example outside of London of what today we would call a confessional church. And they took their declaration very seriously. Another of Balamy's charges was, I quote, I found them slight in their thoughts of the Sabbath. That's what Richard Ballamy said about them. Stephen Chayer replied, What wormwood and gall hath he mingled to us in this desperate and bold accusation and judgment, it being full well known to all observers that both in preaching, printing, and practice, all the baptized congregations with whom we have communion in England, Scotland, and Ireland... "...do hold out a constant profession, that in conscience to the Lord we do hold ourselves bound to keep the first day of the week, called the Lord's Day, holy to the Lord, and that the right celebration of this day consisteth in a spiritual communion with God, our own souls, and each other, with, and each with other in all gospel ordinances and other Christian offices, of goodness and mercy to man and beast, as opportunity and Christian prudence shall require." And this young man well knoweth that this very congregation in Tiverton proceeded with a member, meaning they they brought him to discipline, proceeded with a member as worthy of just censure, only for that his servant, though without his knowledge, took a cloth upon this day out of the rack where it was on drying. And moreover, himself was present when the church appointed it as their judgment to meet constantly about six of the clock in the morning, to the end that the day might be spent more entirely for the Lord." They get up, and they met at 6. Now, don't give too much credit to them for that. Because when it gets dark in England in the wintertime at 4 in the afternoon, you go to bed at 6, and you get up at 2. So, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning is like 10 o'clock to us. But that's what they recorded. That's what they did. This was, this was the act of the church. What was the faith and practice of all the confessional baptized congregations in England, Scotland, and Ireland? The matter is clear. They were bound to keep the first day of the week. This is the clear and uncontroverted testimony of the primary sources. These are the facts. The First London Confession is a fine theological document in no way contradicting the doctrine of the Second London Confession. So I think Dr. Long has made a serious mistake and there is no difference between the two. It's uh, it, when you see that urban legend on the internet You can refute it. You can demonstrate that there's no validity to it. From the beginning, our churches, and I say that with all of its meaning, our churches were churches that were committed to the law of God as it comes to us in the hands of Christ in all 10 of the 10 commandments. Thank you very much for letting me go a little bit over time. Dr. Barcellus will be much shorter now. He's already short in one way. He'll be shorter in another way. (laughs)